Hey, hey, thanks for tuning in. This is TJ Murphy and welcome to another episode of Adventurous Entrepreneurs. My guest today is LaShawn Smith. After spending over a decade as a software executive at Amazon and Microsoft, he uncovered patterns of using process as a tool to win in business more often. And he's applied this toolkit to start new businesses, produce feature films, and turn around struggling companies. He's consulted a wide range of clients, including Electronic Arts, Sony, T-Mobile, Target, Tom Shoes, and Warner Brothers Studios, just to name a few. He has deployed over $450 million in capital across corporate R&D investments. LaShawn holds several patents for inventions related to AI, computer vision, machine learning, and media streaming. And he's been fortunate to help launch products that have found their way into the hands of millions of people. He's a veteran of the U.S. Navy and a graduate of the professional screenwriting program at UCLA. He also holds a Bachelor of Science from Southern Illinois University, a master's degree in media and computers from Arizona State University, and an MBA from Georgetown University. Lots of knowledge here, guys. So just a few of the golden takeaways LaShawn shares in this episode are mastering self-knowledge for business success, the power of personal mission statements and joyful productivity, understanding markets mastering bootstrapping and leveraging time for creativity, networking and growth strategies, how to extract value from strangers and foster personal and business innovation, and LaShawn's blueprint for success, integrating self-accountability, systematic decision-making, and strategic networking in business. So without further ado, this is me and LaShawn Smith. Welcome to the Adventurous Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Murphy. Since quitting my corporate nine to five and starting a business while backpacking through Asia back in early 2017, I've had the privilege of learning from some incredibly adventurous entrepreneurs. Through these conversations and my own journey, I've learned that much like in life, entrepreneurship is an adventure. On this podcast, I explore the journeys of top performing leaders in their fields. These wide ranging conversations include tactical business advice, how I built this insights, lessons in leadership, life hacks, travel stories, favorite hobbies, and insights into living a purposeful and joy-filled life. Adventures await us, so let's dive in. Hey, hey, LaShawn, welcome to Adventurous Entrepreneurs. TJ, what's up, man? Looking forward to this conversation. Happy to be here. Likewise, man. I've been looking forward to this all week, and I'd love to start by digging into a quote. You mentioned that your personal North Star is know thyself, make things stay free, which I absolutely love. So <laughs> I'm just curious, like, how did you arrive at that philosophy and, and how does it guide your decisions both in business and in life? Sure. Well, you know, to kick off for me, I am easily distracted. I've done plenty of cool things uh, in a bit of a random way throughout my professional career. I like to say I've been tasting the buffet. <laughs> yes. And uh, so there's a positive side there because I have met amazing people. I've you know found myself in unexpected places. But at the core, at least for me, if I don't stick to something, I don't really get the benefits of compounding and you know kind of that consistency that's required to uh, really do something great. And so I had to effectively write a mission statement for myself. And you know, you might have seen other versions of this from other people, but for me, I needed to keep it hyper, hyper short. So I actually can remember it and use it as a day-to-day -day tool. And what happens is people approach me, um, you know, not as much now because I've I've kind of broadcasted what I stand for and it's kind of working. Uh, but, you know, still to this day, I'll get opportunities that, you know, old version of LaShawn would be like, oh, my goodness, this is this is fantastic. Now, let me stop what I'm doing and go chase this new thing. And yeah. I really found myself, uh, you know, kind of suffering from shiny object syndrome. And for me to stay focused, I needed a North Star. So that's the context to the actual, um, you know, three sentences, six words I believe everybody should have one of these and, you know, whatever your version is, you know, I don't think it should be much longer than maybe eight words because you want to use it when you're going to, you know, you're going through your email, you get a text, you are about to accept or decline a meeting invite and you want to be thinking, uh oh, is this violate my North Star? So for me, it starts with, you know, those three pillars. The first is I have to know who I am. And so just because
because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something. That's the Japanese Aikigi, you know, type formula. Um, you know, just because you're good at it doesn't mean you enjoy it. And so I have to know what to say no to. Uh, number two is I love to make things. And the further I've gotten away from hands-on making the thing, the less positive energy I've had on whatever that is. And, you know, even when I worked in corporate and, and big tech, I, at a certain point, start, you know, you know, growing a larger organization, and I was getting further and further away from either design, product management, or, you know, actually writing code. And those are all things that got me energized to want to go in technology. And so, you know, if someone is in the furniture business, or they're in the baking business, you know, they may say, one day, I just want to, you know, start a bakery. And when they finally, you know, start that bakery, they're like, oh, my goodness, all I do is spend time in QuickBooks and, you know, hiring people and like, I'm not actually baking. And so for me, uh, you know, my world is kind of the intersection of media and technology. The further I get from actually making the thing, the less positive energy. And I have to remind myself and don't allow myself to let inertia or, you know, what may look like a good opportunity move me away from actually making um, something in, uh, in whatever I'm doing. Uh, and then finally, I prioritize autonomy, agency, uh, freedom um, above almost everything else professionally. And, you know, when you look at, you know, I'm a big fan of, I'm a kind of a Scrabble nerd, uh, but, you know, etymology is the study of you know, kind of what do words actually mean. And uh, the word agency, you know, we know what it means in context of, you know, starting an agency. Um, but when you look at the actual definition, it is your ability and permission to kind of move around, right? Like your, your, your autonomy effectively. And I love those words, autonomy, agency, uh, because they really speak to our ability to um, say, all right, can I move without permission? And anytime I see a business deal or a partnership, even how I invest nowadays, um, I have, you know, I don't have a long list of limited partners or other folks that, um, that I need to, uh, you know, kind of support. Um, and it's not because that's a bad business model, but for me, know thyself, I have to make sure that I have clear line of sight on staying free. And, you know, that comes down to how I manage my calendar. I don't want a bunch of recurring meetings that are draining and it just like, oh my goodness, why am I sitting here? Uh, I don't want to, you know, be building a product that needs some type of permission from some distributor or gatekeeper. Uh, it's one of the reasons, you know, over the years uh, I've invested in films and other types of things, but I've kind of shifted my approach there because, you know, largely that gets monetized through streamers or other folks who have to give you permission to go and monetize. And so those three are, um, you know, a subset of the many things I have to remind myself not to do because I'll get myself in trouble. But but those are the top three prioritizations. And when I stick to those, I can more consistently find myself, you know, having a happy month, week, day. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's it's especially timely and refreshing for me. I mean, I've heard many people say, develop your own personal philosophy. But, but when I heard yours, especially, it really resonated with me, especially the stay free piece. Part yeah. of my philosophy is really designing your, your business or whatever you do around the life that you want to live. So being intentional, like you said, a, a baker right. who starts a bakery, thinks, oh, we're going to have this amazing experience. I'm going to get to focus on my craft, but they don't necessarily always realize all the other things that go into it. So being intentional about how you're going to design it so that you can focus on making things, if that is what you're passionate about and want to continue to do. So exactly. You made a note. I need to need to dig into this. And create <laughs> do you have any practice? I'm sure it's, I mean, it seems obvious, like remind yourself when you got the shiny object floating around to come back to this, but do you have it like written somewhere or how do you keep this top of mind when it's necessary? Well, Keeping it short will help you memorize it. I used to use the sticky note where I'll just stick it in the corner of my monitor, you know, when I'm in, you know, more of an office setting. But a couple of more tactical things that I do is I'm, uh, and I'm, this is going to be very obsessive and almost OCD. So I'm not saying other folks should do what I'm going to describe, but you might find your own version of this is I do what's called uh, calendar journaling. And what that means is throughout the day, usually two or three times a day, you, you go back to your calendar and you update it 
based upon um, what you actually did, not what you said you were going to do. And the reason this is important, if you are, you know, maybe if you're in a corporate job where everything on your calendar is in coordination with someone who, uh, you know, there's just like a social dynamic that's determining what's on that calendar, maybe you're not going to change it. You're going to go to that meeting. But if you're starting to design your day where you're in more control, well, you could go spend your time on all sorts of things. And then when you get off work, even in your personal life, uh, you could spend those minutes. I, I think of, you know, our, our minutes in our days, like spending dollars out of our bank account, you can spend them all sorts of ways. And so I don't look and I don't judge myself if I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to binge on Netflix. All good. It goes on the calendar. And there's something very powerful about that simple journaling. And because, you know, I'm not putting anything in the subject or the notes, I'm just, you know, changing the title or updating the time windows. It's really fast. I mean, this is, you know, seconds worth of work. So it's not some crazy piece, but forcing myself to keep my calendar, um, you know, kind of groomed in that way throughout the, you know, the whole week, you know, my Saturdays and Sundays, everything is here. Um, it just forces me to be honest with myself and says, hey, LaShawn, you said you were going to go write this investment memo to go check out this new business. Um, but then you pretended to be learning by watching all these educational YouTube videos. And, you know, like I have to call myself out and be like, oh, OK, LaShawn, you need to stop doing that. Um, so calendar journaling is really powerful and you don't need to buy some other piece of software. Um, I've seen folks be, you know, a bit more sophisticated where they, they keep two versions of their calendar uh, where they, they have like a, you know, kind of a target and an actual the way you might, you know, keep a ledger and an accounting book. But I keep mine uber simple. And I've been doing this now for um, I don't know when I when I last broke the streak, but it has to be at least, you know, two and a half, three years ago since wow. I broke through the streak. And so my calendar actually has um, basically everything I've done, even travel and those types of things uh, in 15 minute increments, you know, for the last two and a half, three years. And then I had, you know, I had cheated. And then I don't know, it's probably a year before that. But, you know, I've really work this into my system to uh, force me to to think about how am I spending my time. So that's one thing. And every time I'm adjusting my calendar, I'm thinking back to my North Star. The other, you know, kind of very tactical thing is I really believe that I at least uh, need to give myself, you know, sometimes a few hours or a day before I make any commitment with uh, someone else. And so sometimes I'm, I'm on a call and, uh, you know, Maybe there's a deal that I should go look at or someone's offering to maybe invest in something with me. And as I like kind of move through, I'm like, this is all good. Like, let's say yes. Right. And like, let's go do this. And I've found that when I pause and say, hey, let me get back with you tomorrow and give you a decision. Just having that soak time in most situations, I come back and say, not a fit. And I just had to think through what am I signing up for? How is this going to start compounding with the other things I already have? And, you know, in the moment, it just feels so natural. And, you know, it could be for me, it could be from a source of, you know, maybe things that aren't so positive. It could be greed. I'm like, all right, well, that seems like free money over there. I should just say yes to that. Yeah. Um, but I really have to keep myself in check. And so uh, by by not committing on the spot, even if it seems like a no brainer, I keep myself out of trouble more, you know, uh, more often. And what am I doing during that, you know, few hours or that day of thinking? I'm going back to my North Star and really trying to troubleshoot and say, you know, what could go wrong? And that's really kind of counter to how I look at many of my business investments. I'm I'm not looking at business investments thinking here's all the things that could go wrong. I, I think it's a very destructive way to, to look at opportunity. I think what could go right. Um, but when I'm spending my own time, uh, I'm pretty pessimistic in saying like, don't commit uh, unless the conviction is very strong. Hmm. I love it. I mean, we're 10 minutes in, you've already given us several tactical things that people can implement, but I especially love the calendar journaling. I think that's something that you know, many people talk about, but the way that that you describe it, and especially your commitment to it, congrats there, that's huge. But I think especially for designing your, your business or whatever you're doing around your life, having that ability to hold yourself accountable, to audit your time, see where you're actually spending it, that gives you so much more clarity on what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. So exactly. And, you know, just one last thing on that. When, you know, if you caught me 10 years ago, I was crazy on quantified self and all these productivity hacks. And 
you know, I try to be dialectic and challenge myself and say, okay, LaShawn, you think this, like argue the other side of this to, to make sure you're thinking from first principles and maybe I have good intentions, but I got the wrong system or the wrong framework. And I was like, why am I so caught up on all these productivity tools and productivity hacks and, and what have you? And, you know, then there was kind of this turn on hustle culture and folks saying like, you know, it's not all about, you know, squeezing every minute of working. And I kind of, I wanted to listen to both sides and have a more crisp and concise view on like why I was so drawn to these productivity tools. And where I landed was I really get drawn to being intentional. And so for me, it's less about, I am trying to be as productive as many hours as possible. I do uh, really believe that we can, you know, drive more production uh, density. So, you know, if you think about productivity, you know, in a in a one hour unit, somebody might say, well, you know, I work smarter than that other guy. Um, so my hour is more productive. Well, but if that person works just as, as productive as you and they they put in more hours, they're still going to get more output, right? And so I don't, I don't believe this idea where it's just like, oh, I work smarter, not harder. Uh, there are people who can do both, and you just have to figure out in your business or your discipline or what have you, do you want to compete against those those types of people? But for me, when I look at, you know, how I want to spend the time, it's now moved away from you know a hyper focus on being productive and a hyper focus on being intentional. And so again. For what some folks might say is like, oh, LaShawn, you're squandering your time. You're, you're, you know, uh, one of the things I love to do is uh, I look at, I look at, uh, I'm here in the Pacific Northwest. I look at raw land and I like, I'm driving all over the, you know, Washington state looking at raw land. Uh, some of it I'm actively interested, others I'm just trying to learn. And, it's definitely not the most productive way to do it. Like I could just go hop on the internet, look in Google, look at like, there's so many ways I could like simplify that experience. But what I find is, you know, it gives me dedicated time for podcasts. It gives me dedicated time to kind of like see the world. Uh, I'm observing things in unexpected places and it's like, I'm not cheating. And so I feel very intentional about that time, even though they can be large blocks of hours. And so I've moved from being, you know, focused on productivity to be focused on how we intentionally spend our time. I love that example because where some people would say squandering time, I hear something that you get a lot of joy and right. being intentional about that gives you more time to do things that you wouldn't otherwise have the time to do. So there you go. Keep, keep it up, man. And I'd love next to dig into a bit of background on your story because your journey from the Navy to becoming a software executive at some of the big tech giants to an entrepreneur and now an investor, it's it's fascinating to say the least. So could you walk us through that transition and, and what motivated you to take the leap into entrepreneurship and now into primarily investing, if I understand correctly? Yeah. So there are three common themes in all of the windy roads of the things that I've done. One is systems engineering. And if you talk to me as a high school kid, I, I couldn't give you those words, but the things that I were drawn to, that's that was always in the in the mix. The second was media production, you know, whether it was audio or video or what have you, uh, you know, telling stories or connecting with folks through media. And then the third was, you know, really understanding how we make decisions, you know, kind of the the psychological you know, kind of input on um, how we make decisions, uh, especially about time and money. And uh, I grew up in a, uh, you know, with childhood where, you know, there was a lot of financial insecurity. Mm -hmm. And I think that the contrast is I had a very uh, socially supportive, you know, kind of nuclear family. And so like all the intangibles on that side were very strong, but we were broke, right? And so this really interesting piece where a lot of positive support, a lot of emphasis on education, a lot of, you know, I had the right social support structure, but there was always this sense of financial insecurity. And so those three things are kind of the mix that drove me. And so through, through the years, you know, anytime I found an opportunity that intuitively, again, I didn't know the words, you couldn't, you know, put me on the spot and say, like, rattle off those three things. Um, but I was trying to stay honest to myself. And at least I think that's the part I got right earlier in my my journey. And I, the more something felt like it was speaking to those three areas, the more, um, 
you know, I, I would spend time there. And then I would give myself permission to break up. I think that's something that, you know, sometimes we don't want to do because of sunk cost um, or other things in our mind. It's like, well, we've already done so much or we've already gotten this title or we've already, you know, done this. And, you know, I went down a path in the military. Uh, I was very successful in the time I was there. And then I was like, I'm going to go try something else. Uh, Then I, you know, went hands, you know, on, you know, writing code as a software developer. And then I said, I actually want to go design this. And people are like, this is crazy, LaShawn. Like, why are you going to take this lateral or demotive, uh, you know, kind of role where you're demoting yourself to like go be a junior developer when you're, you know, at the time I was kind of like a mid-level developer. Um, And they're like, all right, you're going to go be a junior designer, um, make less money. And it was just like, no, this, like this is clearly the next stage to kind of stay true to these these pillars that were evolving, and what accumulated or you know the acclimation or excuse me the uh, accumulation of all of these skills is that I would get acclimated to a certain world. I would build relationships. I would understand how they would work, and then it would trigger some new opportunity. And and you know over time it kind of created a very unique skill set. Uh, I call it a talent stack. And the combination of all those things led me to be able to lead teams, uh, you know, grow products and, you know, kind of, you know, what in tech they call the the zero to one. That's the Peter Thiel book. And throughout that process, you know, had I just kind of gone down the path and try to get as far as I could as a software engineer, then I'm sure I would have had a great experience, but I wouldn't it wouldn't be this varied. It wouldn't be this, you know, kind of distributed. And so if you look at all of these turns, you're like, wow, LaShawn's resume is super random. And as a employee, I may be less marketable. As a entrepreneur or an investor, I'm hyper, more you know, more. valuable, right? And so this is, I think, just, you know, part of that being intentional on how you you spend your minutes because you will compound into something whether you, you know, are explicit or not. And so today, you know, how I spend the bulk of my time is, making sure I give myself enough space during the week to read, to research, to talk to people, to ultimately just find some opportunity that my, you know, hopefully unique skill set can go add value to. And instead of, you know, just kind of following whatever is popular, I'm trying to figure out, all right, what's the unique toolkit I have uh, and you know, make it a little bit more uh, you know, tangible. There's a lot of great conversations going on right now about, uh, you know, acquiring boring businesses, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Cody Sanchez's and, and you know, everyone around that world every day. <laughs> yeah. And what I love about that is, you know, for folks who don't want to take on too much risk, who are re- re- ready to put in work as an operator, it is a great blueprint to say, here's a way to break out of, you know, the employee path where you can take more control of your destiny. And there is no shortage of these businesses, um, you know, because of these transitioning demographics and other things that, you know, folks know about that space. And so, you know, I kind of looked at it. I was like, wow, mathematically, this makes sense. And all these things, it was like all goodness. And, you know, what's the reason you wouldn't do that? Well, because people say, well, you know, maybe a better business model is, you know, building SaaS products or, you know, building, you know, apps or what have you, but they like, don't do that. It's going to waste so much time. You're going to like, it's so risky. And like, there's all these things. Well, why do folks say that? It's because most people don't have those skills, but I I already happen to have those skills. And so it would be silly for me to say, I'm going to just go follow what everyone else is doing over here and ignore what makes me unique. And so I believe most advice should be contextual. Uh, and situational because, you know, just what worked for me may not work for somebody else, but maybe the system or the process is something that can be extrapolated and we can, you know, share with each other. Uh, But hopefully you've done something in your life that makes you unique. You have some unique interests and or unique values. And that combination of those things is probably what should, you know, be your compass. I love that point because I think so many of us get into this trap of seeing whether it's the boring business influencer on social media or whatever they're pitching, you're looking at it as, oh, that's a one size fits all. I can do that exactly, or I can't do that. But the important thing is to contextualize your experience, your interests, your skills, and do your due diligence into does that model work for me? And am Bingo. I in it enough to, to actually move forward? And I love your story here because the main theme that pops out to me is curiosity. You know, you were moving in all these different paths. You you got to levels of success and then you had this eagerness to learn 
and stack up skills that have led you down this path of becoming an entrepreneur and investor where you're able to really multiply all of those experiences into something much greater. So I'm curious, like reflecting back on the early days, if you were to give advice to somebody that's just getting started or thinking about starting a business, starting down their entrepreneurial path, like, are there any key pieces of advice that, you know, you would tell yourself when you were just getting started? Yeah. So again, you know, our, our paths are so unique. I, what I've attempted to do is find the thread that can be more broadly applicable and not just say, well, it worked for me. Uh, because if I'm honest with myself, I've gotten lucky so many times. I mean, you know, growing up as a kid, I love to, you know, kind of play around with beats, music production, uh, video cameras, and, you know, writing code. Like, I didn't know that social media would be a thing that, you know, software engineering would be explode. Like I had, had no insight that this was something you could actually even get paid for. And so to pretend it's like, well, you know, you should just go, you know, follow your passion. Well, maybe your passion is something that people won't pay for. Right. And so I'm not, you know, I try not to assume that what worked for me can, can really be extrapolated. So, and I like to start with that as, as kind of an asterisk, uh, you know, before I say like, well, here's what I think, because, you know, we're all smart enough to kind of listen to hopefully interesting stories or from people who have, you know, have had you know, maybe experiences similar or different from ours and then pull out the pieces that we can take action on. So, you know, with that big asterisk, what I would say is when I started off, one of the biggest mistakes I had was uh, I would just build the products that, you know, made sense for me. And, I would say like, surely other people have this same problem. And I've seen this multiple, multiple times where, you know, there's definitely some survivorship bias that comes out of this, where I've seen people who they did that and it didn't work. And then other people who did that and it worked brilliantly. And they're like, the only way is to just, you know, um, follow your your passion and, uh, you know, then it will work out. I've come to a more nuanced and hopefully mature version of that, which is, you know, if I was talking to, you know, young LaShawn, I would say, number one, pick a community that you love and, you know, even, you know, kind of writing it in a in an action oriented statement, love your customer. And if I hear someone saying like, oh, you know, this new such and such trend in this particular industry is booming. I'm going to go dive into that. And that's why I ignored a lot of the noise, you know, during like Web3 and the crypto phase, um, because it was very clear to me who really deep down, you know, was connected to both the technology and the customers. And then who just thought like, man, this is a way for me to go get rich. Uh, and if you are not showing up with kind of a true empathy and compassion for, you know, your community, uh, I think one, you're going to have a lot of misses on product strategy. You're not going to write great copy. You're not going to think about interesting go to market because you won't know where the customers are. So you're going to overspend and maybe you're spending in advertising where you could just go to this you know forum and have a conversation and get the same conversion. Like there's just so many things that you're just going to miss if you're not really connected. And so, I wouldn't assume that just because I'm interested there that there is a market. And, you know, each year I try to uh, have like a really hyper focused, uh, you know, kind of thesis that I'm trying to learn from and hopefully, you know, articulate in a uh, an interesting way. You know, this past year, I've been primarily looking at permanent capital, capital and different ways to fund businesses. Um, that sit between VC and maybe small business. And so that's what I spent the bulk of this year. As I'm kind of outlining for next year, my, my focus is going to be around like, how do we productize customer development? And what I mean by that, if, if folks have read The Lean Startup or any of these books, they talk about, you know, kind of find your customer um, understand their pain point. And then, you know, there's there's kind of a path that will lead you to product market fit, where you have so much demand for whatever you're selling that your, your organization and your processes are breaking down because so many people want to give you money, right? And so we hear this word product market fit, we almost like throw it around like it's nothing. And, you know, what I would go back to early LaShawn and say, um, obsess, obsess on breaking those those words down because well, I mean intuitively know what it means. Product market fit. It's three words. Um, we can many times articulate a great vision for the product, but 
what is you know the articulation of market and fit? And so when I think about a market, it's very straightforward. This is a group of folks who have a recurring problem that is painful enough that they have both the interest and the willingness to go pay to solve that problem. Uh, and there's a lot of them. And so when I think through that lens, I'm like, all right, I shouldn't go on Google and say, how many people bought bicycles last year? And like, that's my market. Um, you should go and validate this. And I have this rule kind of getting back to the tactics where for every new business that I am going to consider investing in, that's not an existing business that's kind of proven there's demand there. Uh, I have a hundred interview rule. And what I want to know is if you don't go interview a hundred people, I'm not interested in investing in your business. And I want to see the data. I want to see how did you, you know, it could be lightweight. You could put it in a spreadsheet. You could put it in Word docs. Like, I don't really care how people document it, but the work you need to go talk to hundred people and invariably at person 17 or 25 or whatever it is, what you thought was your product, what you thought was your solution is not it. Or what you thought people would pay is off. And sometimes it's the other direction. People actually will pay more, right? But regardless what it is, what's in our brain is almost guaranteed to be wrong. And so what I would really tell myself is, you know, on the path to product market fit, I would spend most of the early time on market validation, figuring out who are the humans who have this recurring problem that wanna pay to solve this. Um, and, you know, again, it's that saying, you know, you, you, you're probably better off selling uh, you know, painkillers and vitamins and, you know, wrapping all of that up in something where, you know, maybe a behavior is shifting, maybe there's a regulatory change that has happened, uh, but whatever it is, this is also growing, right? There's there's more of these people who now are, are kind of joining this market. And when, if you're really honest with yourself, uh, many times, if you go through that process, you're going to find out the market's not that interesting. And, you know, for folks like, you know, like Warren Buffett, who says like, hey, I might read, you know, dozens of books over the course of months, and then I'm going to make one decision. Um, that to me, this is the the more approachable, accessible version for early stage entrepreneurs. If someone says, hey, LaShawn, I just need, you know, $250,000 to go build X. Uh, many times what they're, if you listen to them, they're saying, hey, I want to go run this experiment, and I need to go build this product. And once I built this product, I'm going to test demand. And I'm like, like stop <laughs> like like you don't need to spend you don't need any money to go talk to these 100 people um the other great forcing function of 100 interviews is it's going to make you very uncomfortable and start thinking about you know whether you end up with a low or high touch funnel um how do you actually go find your customers because you're going to run out of friends and family you know in the 30s or 40s you know count of the interview and so now um you're really going to have to put in work to go find these people and so that's not a money issue that's a you know how much hustle how much time how much you know thought can you put in to go kind of tackling these and the upside when you do this is that again you're going to have real data you're not going to be going off some Forrester or Gartner report or some random blog post that says like, you know, this business or industry is growing by 37% a year. You're going to have real data. Um, but the other piece, which is super important, is some subset of those 100, if you do decide to go forward and build a product or a service, they are going to be the folks who are going to drive your word of mouth. They're going to be your early stage social proof. They're going to be your case studies. They're going to be the faces on your landing page. Um, like all these problems that we always have to solve you should front load that piece because, you know, unless you're truly building like rockets or something like that, the building of the product is probably not the hard part. It's the, you know, the marketing and the selling, getting people's attention, you know, that flow uh, people have to know, trust, buy, like that's the real work. And so, you know, this that's a long answer, but my point is I would go back to myself and like shake myself and say, stop building, go validate the market. And then once you have that data, go build the right thing. Go deeper. Yeah. This hundred interview rule, because I mean, just thinking about being a, you know, starting a company, wanting investment for all these, these reasons, why should anyone invest if you haven't gone deep to really validate and understand, is this a product fit? Is this even the market that makes sense for this? And like you said, you're going to learn so much throughout that process that right. after that hundredth interview, things are going to be painstakingly clear. And you're going to have a much more guided vision for what step comes next. So on the funding piece, I'm curious, you've, you've had multiple exits 
and probably raise some money. And I, I know you talk about this a lot in some of the thought leadership and things that you put out, but can you share specific strategies that entrepreneurs can use to bootstrap effectively and gain leverage without external funding? Yeah. So one of the reasons I'm so passionate about folks who start small is it forces you to see the holistic picture because you got to do all the jobs. And it's, it's a cheat to say, well, I'm the CEO. I actually, you know, in the the companies I've started later on, I don't, I rarely use that title um, because it's like, all right, it's like 12 of us. Like, why do I need to call myself the the CEO? This is kind of a silly title. Uh, I might just use owner or something like that. Um, uh, founder is fine. But, you know, again, this is me trying to check myself uh, because I think it signals like, I want to be big. And I'm like, no, now I want to be small and I want to take pride in being small because I can move, you know, as they say, uh, you know, big companies move in months and years, you know, venture back startups move in weeks. And ideally, if you're a micro business, you're moving in, you know, in hours. And that's the magic is that you can just you're more agile, because you don't have all this, you know, decision consensus and all these other things that have to take place. And so I go back and say, all right, um, first, do I have myself in order? There's a Charlie Munger story where he's like, hey, um, you know, your first hundred thousand is really what unlocks you psychologically. And he's and he's saying, basically, you paid off all your debt and you got a hundred thousand dollars in cash in the bank after taxes. And he's like, psychologically, that's going to be a point where you realize like, oh, I could do this. Um, I've kind of adjusted that, you know, uh, basically doubled it because of inflation. Um, I think that number is maybe, you know, more like 200 grand. But I like the idea of going all the way back to $2. Uh, when I was really young, um, one of my relatives, I don't even remember who it was, uh, they used to give me silver dollars. And then one day on my birthday, they gave me a $2 bill. And I even do this to like my you know, um, nieces and nephews. I'll give them $2 bills sometimes. Um, oh. But you got to go to a bank and you got to get a $2 bill. It's like, a, you know, it's kind of a hassle, <clears throat> but it's just kind of a cool thing. But the reason I use the $2 bill is, all right, um, go do this market validation and go get someone to give you $2 for whatever you're selling. And I don't care if you say, well, LaShawn, my product's $800. Okay, well, now you have zero customers. I'm not saying price it at, at $2 in perpetuity. Go get one, two, three people to give you $2 for your product. And not like a fake $2. Like, no, I'll just give it to you free. No. However, you're going to collect money for real. They have to go to the Stripe page or they have to Venmo or like whatever it is. They have to go give you the $2. It has to show up in your bank account. And... There's so much work to go from I give this away for free the, to I, I collect $2 that it'll force you to build the systems and think through problems. And I'm going to get to your funding question, but I, but I really think like this progression is, is super important. And so then um, I like to do what's just called add zeros. And, you know, maybe 200 is, is, you know, now we're getting too much precision, but you go from 200 or $2 and then you're like, all right, how do I now go get $2,000? How do I turn that into $20,000? How do I turn that now into 200? And at each of these increments, it's forcing you to think differently because what worked at $2 won't work at, at $200,000. Um, but why I believe psychologically this is so important has to do a lot with mindset. You know, if you go watch, you know, maybe Alex Hermosi or some one of these folks who will talk about like, well, here's all you have to do with your offer and your leads. Um, anyone who's been in the industry, almost any industry where they've had to really take control of, of their sales process, um, they're going to listen to him. And it's like, ah, oh, this, this makes a ton of sense. Now I will say, I believe, you know, folks like him are more optimizing for B2C type products. I don't yeah. think his framework is as useful for, for B2B, but there's still a lot of goodness that you can extract. But my point is that, you know, you'll see in the comments or other things, folks will say, well, great. Not, you know, I just need to have $200,000 and we have to give ourselves permission to work all the way back to the $2 standpoint, because like, I don't care if you work at Taco Bell or what have you, like you, if you can't figure out how does somebody give you $2, you're just not ready to be in business. And so anyway, I call that out because that's like the readiness in the gym. And people are like, I'm ready to go play professional sports. And I'm like, all right, how many hours did you practice? Did you, did you, you know, did you do all the things that, you know, would lead up to you playing at the professional level? And for many folks, uh, that's not true. Now, back to your question, if you do those things, you're going to have a couple things that are very valuable. You're going to have you're going to force yourself to have discipline around process because otherwise otherwise you're not going to be able to compound your way, you know, from from the 2 to the 
the 2000 to the 200,000, blah, blah, blah. You won't have the path to go and do that because you'll get lazy. You'll try to like do it all at once and, and you won't kind of do the incremental work required. Um, and so that's the first piece because what you're really trying to do in all of these things in bootstrapping is look for predictability paired with velocity. And so, you know, VC capital um, wants velocity, but they don't really care about predictability. Like you could you could burn through you know millions of dollars and the firm the VC firm is like well I have twenty other bets in this industry and then you know one of these are mathematically going to work out but if you're bootstrapping you have to add predictability to the mix and that's probably going to bring down some of your velocity and you have to find the right balance of the two for your particular industry your particular market and so once you have all of that that's all the preface it's like okay well but I still need some money. Um, I believe the more you can uh, be hyper-focused on folks who have high willingness to pay, uh, you'll hear some people call these high-value customers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the number one path to finding high-value customers and then expanding your set of offers to that, that customer to go get to your base number. Um, I think for folks who are trying to grow big businesses, it's around $2 million in the US. Uh, you know, The numbers will shift. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you could bootstrap your way to $2 million and imagine you're going to shut the company down. You're like, I just want to make $2 million. I'm going to shut this company down. Um, that if you have, you know, some basic financial, you know, personal finance, you know, discipline, you know, grow the gap, spend less than you make, don't live outside your means, you know, don't let the hedonic treadmill reset, you know, you used to drive, you know, an Altabun, now you got to have this, you know, much nicer car. Um, like if you keep all of those things in check and you can bootstrap your way up to that point, um, magic happens because now you're going to free yourself to have control of your calendar. You can basically buy yourself out of the job. You're effectively buying more time. And once you have that, there is no shortage of ideas on how to partner, on how to serve your customer differently, how to evolve your product when you have that freedom of time. Because, you know, as we called out earlier, you're hopefully solving something where it's your unique skill set, your experiences and your unique values. And, you know, people are like, well, crap, like, $2 $2 million, that's like a scary number. And it's not really $2 million. It's a lot more than that. It's it's 3 to $4 million because you got to pay taxes on that. Um, and so, but the reason I, I like that number is if you are picking a market, this is why I start with that part of the conversation, uh, that is very healthy, you can make $2 million. There, there, there is almost no healthy market that you can go chase, whether you are selling a done, uh, you know, a DIY, a done with you or a done for you product. It doesn't matter. You can go get up to that point. Now, it may flatline after that point, but it doesn't matter. Step one is to go buy back your time. And, you know, what do you do with that $2 million? You know, I'm not a financial advisor, but you can, you know, deleverage yourself. Early in my 30s, that was one of the things that, um, you know, folks were saying, LaShawn, this is really stupid. Um, You're, you know, you should go take a loan on these assets. And then, you know, that's the way you're going to go make this money. And um, I kind of looked at it and it just didn't make sense to me to not have the freedom. And, uh, you know, and and I went back and forth. I followed my rules and I broke my rules. Uh, and then eventually, you know, where I'm at today is I just don't have any personal um, debt. I have a, a tiny note on a piece of real commercial real estate that I own. Um, but if you have no car payment, if you have no mortgage payment, if you have like if all those things are delevered, your burn gets so low that you can think clearly and you're not under duress. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I really believe in this path of like, you know, build up to whatever that initial inflection point that, you know, maybe if this was the fire community or something, people would be trying to like, you know, retire. I'm like, uh, you know, become financially independent so you can go chase your real business opportunity. So anyway, you know, I'm, I'm bouncing around with a lot of different pieces, but I'm trying to bring them together to kind of call out really what I believe it is, is uh, this like systematic way to kind of building yourself up to that financial freedom point. And then from there, really the magic on bootstrapping your way without a lot of capital is having time because it's time to think, it's time to go places. Uh, in almost every city, this is a little hack, there is a conference. If you live in a, you know, you know, let's say you got more than a hundred thousand people in your city, uh, there is some conference or trade show or something um, that is going on that is near free. Um, if it's not free, the exhibit hall or something else is free, and 
if you are in a certain industry and you just have the time of your day, like people are like, LaShawn, you're just like strolling around at this random, you know, conference. Like, what does that have to do with it? It's like, I'm just learning. And guaranteed, you're going to find right. some spark that's like, oh, crap, I never thought of that that way. Somebody's going to solve a problem in an interesting way, or you're going to meet somebody that, you know, is like a serendipitous moment that creates a real connection. Uh, I love this concept of, I call it meet strangers. Uh, don't just, you know, don't just network, meet strangers and then figure out how you can add value to them. Uh, that's an aside, but I think that's a way to compound what makes you valuable and let more people know that your talent stack exists. And so through all of this, you know, what does this do? It's like... If you if you are trying to keep your same hectic calendar that's jam packed that's not giving you into any mental clarity, and then you're like, all right, so tell me how I get enough money to grow my business. I'm like, that's that's not how it works. Um, the the math here is you have to have you have to be in places that the day to day folks aren't. And I'll kind of wrap up this segment with you know a quick story. Uh, I had a business that I was I was starting. This is a business that I sold. And I was trying to figure out my go-to-market and my, my sales strategy. And I was talking to a mentor and he said, you know, well, tell me what, what you do every day. And I had moved close to the office so I could walk instead of getting in a car. So that I was like, that's my little hack. I don't want, I don't want to be in a commuting. Uh, this was prior to the pandemic. So we, we actually went into the office. But um, but then I was like, it's like, you know, then I go grab something over here or I bring something. Uh, sometimes I even like leave food at the office for my breakfast. And I was like, had all this thing about eating because I love to eat. And he was like, all right, I don't know what all of that's about. He's like, but I think you should stop that process, you know, trying to save money on the eating or what have you and turn your eating your breakfast activity into a business development opportunity. And I was like, like, what do you mean? And he's like, just go find the nicest hotel that has a lot of foot traffic and go eat breakfast there every morning. And I was like, huh. And so first I thought it was a silly thing to say. And uh, I was like, all right, I don't know what this guy's talking about, but I trust him. Let me try it out. In the flow, there was a Four Seasons that was between my apartment and and the office. And I went there, and the first day, I was like, "Crap, this breakfast is really expensive." <laughs> and I was like, "I'm going to do this every weekday." Um, I was like, "I'm going to give it a shot." And two things happened. Number one, you know, I kind of dressed down. I'm not like dressed in fancy clothes, and people are like, "Who is this?" You know, tall black dude who keeps coming here like in the t-shirt, <laughs> just keeps eating <laughs> eating breakfast. Um, <laughs> And then uh, the other thing is like, because of that, people just get very comfortable around you, right? And other people pick up on this, right? And so all the wait staff, everybody's like, hey, LaShawn, hey, Mr. Smith, like all these things. So the other people are like, who is this guy, right? Um, and I landed two customer contracts from working, um, just kind of showing up to that space and like, you know, drumming up a conversation with strangers at the Four Seasons in downtown Seattle. And so but my point is like, this is so like, this is light work. Like, that's not a free thing, right? Like, so I'm not saying this is a hack that's zero dollars, but there's all sorts of ways for you to take those types of ideas and like take an activity you already were doing. Um, but the, I believe this is kind of the, the punchline to your question. You have to give yourself time and mental space to go think of these things and execute these things. Otherwise, I don't believe you really have a great chance to um, to stumble on it when your brain is like burnt down because your day was so long and all you want to do is just like wind down for the last few minutes before you wrap up the day. No surprises. Time is our ultimate resource. And when we have more of it, innovation and good things happen. And I love Bingo. that story. Do you still do something like that where you go to breakfast? I do. I don't do uh uh, that particular place, but I intentionally drive out to random places that I would not normally go in my city. And so like, I have a few favorites, obviously, but I legit just go look on the map and say like, I don't know what this neighborhood is. And I'll go hang out at a coffee shop. I'll go grab some uh, breakfast or lunch. And uh, even if I don't meet anybody, it's just you're observing different things. Uh, and it's just such a powerful way. And again, I'm using eating because that's what I love to do. For yeah. some people, it might be an outdoor activity or whatever. Exercise. Like, yeah. 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 So, so uh, you know, like maybe you're just all into yoga and you're just like going to all the yoga spots in town. Like, it, it doesn't really matter what it is, as long as I believe it's something you already do. You have a real connection with it. Uh, and then you're thinking outside of the box on how to bring it to life. I love that. Well, man, as we wrap things up, do you do you have any parting words of wisdom, advice, a challenge of people that are listening before I ask where people can find you online, socials, all that good stuff? You know, I would say two things. First off, 
anyone who's taking the time to, you know, listen to these conversations, I'm assuming, and I might be wrong, that they are either thinking about their path to business ownership, entrepreneurship, or entrepreneurship. That's where you're trying to grow and start businesses inside other companies. And, you know, it's trying to figure out, all right, did I get a nugget out of this that I can go put to use? I really love the uh, the kind of book title from Jim Collins, where it's think big, start small, scale fast. And if you're listening to any of this and it's and it's resonating, it's like, don't delay, like go do something today and compound your way to success. Uh, you know, I was in Malaysia uh, earlier this uh, this summer and I, I just love Southeast Asia uh, mm-hmm. and the people are nice. The uh, specifically Kuala Lumpur is one of the big cities, uh, the, the cool city. biggest city in Malaysia. Um, it's just a fantastic place. Um, but the people are nice. And uh, this sounds like a silly thing, but I have learned that just don't do business with mean people. Like there, there's no upside to it. Those are the folks that are, they're going to become your network. So why do you want a network full of people that you don't like? And, and you know, when I take those trips, it's just reminded that there are so many ways to do the type of work you want to do with people that you want to be around. And so look for those shared values. Look for nice people. This sounds like a small throwaway comment, but it's so, so important because business will always get sucky at some point. And you don't want it to get sucky with people you don't like next to you. Um and the last thing I would share, you know, the name of my company is Kager Investments, you know, like the finance term compound annual growth rate. And I, the reason I love that acronym, you know, it used to be like a douchey Wall Street bro type term. And I've kind of, I've reclaimed it. Uh, yeah, and the reason I love that, that term, yeah, um, is because to me, it's not just about compounding your money. It's about compounding your personal development, mm-hmm. compounding your relationships, compounding, you know, you know, how you think about growing your business. And if you think, you know, is that statement, you know, get 1% better every day. If you think about the power of compounding to how you get yourself better, how you improve your company, all these things, it forces you to think in a system. And when you think in a system, you're like, well, I want to get this thing better. That means I can't just kind of freestyle my way there. Um, You know, it's like going to the gym the first day. You're not going to see these crazy gains. But if you just stick it out, you're going to say like nine months. Oh, my goodness. Like, I couldn't imagine how this thing could go because it's almost always exponential and not a linear um, situation. And so for anyone out there, just like find the system that you can stick to, that you can be consistent, because I really believe that's the the biggest unlock um, for for our success. Hundred mm, percent. Just keep showing up, and to anyone listening, Sean said it. You got to take action. So yeah, pick one thing from this episode for me. It's something I've thought about before, but creating that that short philosophy that that you can really use as your compass. That's yeah, and share it in public, you know, to friends and family. It shouldn't be a private thing. You want you want them not to violate your constitution as well. Hundred percent, awesome man. Well, so much value. I've got a page of notes here that I'm going to reflect on. So I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us, and we'll put links to everything in the show notes. Sounds great, TJ. Great to hang out. Hey, likewise. Peace. To all of our adventurous listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe, download, and share this on social media or with someone you know will get some value from it. Leaving a review goes a long way in helping people find the show. And I personally appreciate reading them when they come in. So please go drop one if you have the time. We'll see you all next week. And remember, whether we're talking about business or the things that bring us joy outside of work, life is meant for exploring. So go out there and live it one adventure at a time.